Welcome to the fourth week in this series, Glory, the Face of Jesus. I cannot tell you how much fun I have had digging into this series. My passion for the Word of God has been put into high gear, and I, I've been so blessed as I have gotten focused on the characteristics of God that are revealed to us in Jesus. Now, I'm up front, I'm going, to be, uh, I'm going to begin this message by letting you know and admitting that there is no way possible for me to fully cover or even give justice to this, this, uh, this topic in a single message. Uh, my hope is that this message will entice you to dig into the Word a little deeper yourself. The, the theme verse that we have uh, been going to for this series is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. And Paul writes uh, that they are preaching that Jesus Christ is Lord, and we ourselves are your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let there be light in the darkness has made this light shine in our hearts so we could know the glory of God that is seen in the face of Jesus Christ. The last line uh, we just, in, that in the passage we just read is where I pulled uh, the title for the series, The Glory of God is Seen in the Face of Jesus Christ. Here's what we must realize. When we pause to reflect on Jesus, you know, you know the whole point of Christmas we're not just looking at the face of a baby surrounded by golden hay. We are looking at Jesus, the face of God, and when we see Jesus, we see the glory of God. In addition, in that verse, Paul condenses in, in that last sentence the understanding that the one who spoke the first words of creation, let there be light, also placed that light in our hearts. Now, it's important that we read that correctly. Paul doesn't say that there is a spotlight placed on our lives or in front of us. The beam of light does not change anything externally. It changes internally. So, so we're not walking around with blinders on, pretending we're in a fairy tale land. We, we're not ignoring the chaos and the craziness that's going on around us. We're taking this Christmas season and we're being intentional about seeing Jesus amongst the chaos. One of my favorite responses to the question, how are you, is fantastic. And there might be a little twinge of sarcasm mixed in there. Now, the root word uh, uh, for fantastic comes from the word fantasia. Maybe you remember the Disney movie from, uh, from 1940 called Fantasia, when Mickey Mouse puts on the sorcerer's hat and makes a mess of everything because he doesn't know how to control the magic. The word fantasia and fantastic literally mean to live in a fantasy world. We're not suggesting that we live in some whimsical world, but we are called to live in a dark world with the light of Jesus Christ in us. When we live focused on the light of Jesus Christ, we become the light in our world. This is, this is the image that Jesus gives to us with the nativity. See, when we, when we get into the nativity, we, he, we have to understand he was born at such a time when the world was full of chaos and difficulties. We've turned the nativity into a pretty display that we put in the corner of our home. But the truth is that the lives of Mary, Joseph, and Jesus were in a state of constant turmoil. 
They, they were forced to do the, the things they didn't want to do by the Roman oppressors. Joseph was struggling to make ends meet. He couldn't even find a, a comfortable place for his bride to have her child. Soon after the birth of their firstborn, those days when you don't really know how, you have no clue how to be a parent, they, they are forced to run for their lives and escape to a foreign country, away from their family and friends. It's in the midst of all of that chaos and craziness that an angel appears to Joseph and tells him, he says this, he says, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means Christ with us. Just as God was present in their hectic and tumultuous world, he is with us today. There is so much packed into that statement, Emmanuel, he is with us. What does it mean? It means Jesus, the glory of God, is revealed to us that the characteristics of Jesus are the characteristics of God. In the series, we've been looking at the characteristics of God that he gave to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, and that, that are now revealed to us in Jesus in the nativity story and the life he lived. In Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, it says, The Lord passed in front of Moses, calling out. So the, here is the description God gives of himself. Yahweh, the Lord the God of compassion and mercy. I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. So far, we've been able to look at two, two of those characteristics that we all appreciate, compassion and mercy or grace. The, the third attribute, attribute of God's character is slow to anger. And on the first read, it sounds good. God is slow to get angry. But if you think about that for more than three seconds, <laughs> That means God gets angry. Now, in the context that God is giving this description to Moses of his character, it is understandable to say that God, had, that God was angry and that he had every, every right to be angry. The people had, that, had just, that he had just rescued from Egypt, brought through the Red Sea, and is now brought into a position of safety have turned their backs on him and are worshiping a golden calf that they created and are calling it Lord. Now, just a side note to help us grasp the context of this situation. It has been less than two months since they walked through the Red Sea on dry ground. So anger seems to be a justifiable emotion for the circumstance, but what makes us nervous is if God can get angry with them, then God can get angry with us. And, and the thing is, it's not a standalone verse. There are a bunch of times that we read that God gets angry. Numbers chapter 11, verse 1. Soon the people began to uh, complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the Lord's anger blazed against them, and he sent a fire to rage among them. And he destroyed some of the people in the outskirts of the camp. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 14. You must not worship any of the gods of the neighboring nations, for the Lord your God who lives among you is a jealous God. 
His anger will flare up against you, and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. The Lord's anger in Isaiah chapter 5, verse 25, burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuge in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Earthquakes, dead bodies in the streets, and his anger is still burning. God's anger is not a joke. It's not something that just makes for a good apocalyptic movie. No, the anger of God is real, and it makes us uncomfortable. In fact, God's anger is one of the main reasons people reject the God of the Bible. And it's definitely a topic that's not covered in too many messages, especially around Christmas. I know I wasn't too keen to dive into this one. Now, it's important that we don't get too off track. When we say that God is, gets angry, that does not mean that he is an angry God. Anger is not his characteristic. His characteristic is that he is slow to anger. But if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus and appreciate that he is slow to anger, then we need to take a closer look at the biblical context of God's anger. When you understand anger, you hear the word anger, you, you have a, a, an emotion that comes within you, because anger is a human emotion. It's a feeling of adrenaline that comes with increased blood flow to our muscles. Our, our, you can feel your fists clench, your muscles contract. You, when you're angry, you can feel your face and your ears getting hot. The only thing that we can think of is what has just made us feel this way. It's interesting, the Hebrew words that are translated in Exodus chapter 34, slow to anger, are, it's two words, and it's arek and af, arek and af. So, some translations use one long word for these two Hebrew words, long suffering. The reason they do that is because arek means long, af means nose. Technically here, it's dual nostrils. So, in Hebrew, to say you are angry is to say my nose burned hot. The English metaphor that we use for anger is that someone is hot-tempered, they have an anger issue. In Hebrew, I guess it would be they are hot-nosed. This Hebrew metaphor is based on our physical experience of anger. When you, when you are angry, your face gets hot, including your nose. So those verses we just read a little bit ago, uh, Numbers uh, chapter 11, could be translated this way. Soon the people began to complain about their hardship, and the Lord heard everything they said. Then the heat of his nose blazed against them. Isaiah 5, 25 would be the heat of his nose burns against his people. There's another way that it says, Ezra chapter 8, verse 22, it says, The gracious hand of our God is on everyone who looks to him. But his great anger, or literally his great nose, is against all who forsake him. But God doesn't have a nose. And he, he doesn't feel heat the way humans do, right? So what, was, what is taking place here is the fancy literary tool is called um, anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism. Or let, let me put it in a language that I actually understand. It is giving a human description to something that is not human. 
the, the writers of the Bible do this as a way for us to help understand God's emotional responses. Now, now me just saying that God has emotional responses it, it goes, causes us to pause. Does God have emotions? Now, now remember, God is, remember, Jesus is God with us. So the characteristics of Jesus are the characteristics of God. And Jesus is not an emotionalist robot. The Gospels tell us that he had emotions. John tells us that he wept with those who wept. That Mark says that he felt compassion for the multitudes. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. In, in Matthew, we read that Jesus is overcome with sorrow. The fact that you and I have emotions also confirms that God, too, has emotions, for we are created in his image, Genesis 1.27 says. So while God is not human, he does get angry. And he has a good reason for reacting to human behavior with anger. Bottom line, God would not be a good God if he didn't have strong reactions to evil and injustice. So yes, God does have the emotion of anger, but that doesn't mean that we can take all of our human experience with anger and apply it to God. Because divine anger and human anger are not identical. The great Jewish scholar Abraham Joshua Heschel cautioned us about approaching God's anger and applying it as a human anger. He writes this, he says, The prophets never thought that God's anger is something that can be, cannot be accounted for, unpredictable, irrational. It is never a spontaneous outburst, but a reaction occasioned by the conduct of humans. Indeed, it is the major task of the prophet to set forth the facts that account for it, to insist that the anger of God is not blind, explosive force, operating without reference to the behavior of man, but rather voluntary and purposeful, motivated by concern for right and wrong. To, to understand the anger of God, we need to look at what makes God angry. The first time the, the word anger, that God is angry with someone in the Bible is not a, at a place you'd expect it. What, is it Adam and Eve in the garden when they, they failed in that, in that situation? No. Is it when Cain killed Abel? Nope. Is it when God looked at the earth and saw all the wickedness of man and decided to destroy it with a flood? No. The first person that God gets angry with in the Bible is Moses, and it's in a spot where you would not expect it. It's in Exodus chapter 4, verse 13. It says, but he said, oh my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. What is it about this context that makes God angry? This is the burning bush experience for Moses. How is it possible that Moses could have made God angry at the same time God's glory is on display in the burning bush? The text gives us the answer. Let's go back just a few, one chapter, and it says in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, that the Lord told him at the burning bush, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their, their harsh slave drivers. Yes, I'm aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians 
and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. The land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, <laughs> Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen how the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you Pharaoh, sending you to Pharaoh. You must lead my people Israel out of Egypt. God is going to save Israel. But how? Through Moses. But what does Moses do? Right after he's, God calls him to this amazing adventure and says, I've, I've equipped you to do this, Moses begins with a list of excuses. Ah, I don't, I'm not qualified to go before Pharaoh. And Oh, God, I really don't know you that well. I don't even know your name. And, or, the, God, the people won't actually listen to me. Or, the, the one he says is, I, well, I'm not a public speaker because I have a, a stutter. <laughs> the final one that sends God into his anger is that he just has no excuse and just asks for someone else to go. See, God's anger burns when his children are suffering and the person who's been given the authority and the position to remove them from suffering refuses to go. The next time we find anger in, in the Bible, or the anger of God, is in the song that the Israelites sing after they cross the Red Sea. They sing this way in Exodus chapter 15, and in the greatness of your excellence, you overthrow those who rise up against you. You send out your burning anger, and it consumes them like chaff. The children of Israel are rejoicing here because of God's anger. His anger that is in response to a powerful leader who has oppressed his creation, the creation that he has made in his image. Let me show you one more example of where we find the, a place where we find God's anger, and it's just a few chapters later. In fact, it's right in the middle of the context that we've been talking about. Exodus chapter 32. God says to Moses, after he, after he sees them worshiping the golden calf, he tells Moses, now leave me alone so my fierce anger can blaze against them and I will destroy them. As you walk through the Bible, God's anger is found more times towards Israel's constant betrayal of their covenant. Those that are supposed to be demonstrating the glory of God to the world are instead worshiping their own creation and calling it Lord. In all these situations... The anger of God is a result of the image of God being oppressed, abused, or devalued. See, we are made in God's image. This is not just a nice thing to say. It's not just a nice magnet we can put on our refrigerator. It's not just a good line to put into a song. It is who we are, and it's God's design for humanity, and he takes it very seriously. And he expects us to do the same. Instead, we elevate prestige, influence, position, and a slew of other things. We, we value them and lift them up to the status of God's little g. Because we're in the pursuit of these self-created gods, our families, our workplace, our, our, our community, our, our churches, 
begin to neglect, marginalize, and even at times destroy other people made in God's image. This is the cycle of the children of Israel. And it's the cycle that we perpetuate today. This is what makes God angry, and rightfully so. You see, there, there are some things that are worth getting angry about. While angry can be a destructive force, there are some situations where anger is necessary and right. When someone sees injustice and is, that's taking place and getting angry is a response that makes sense. We could even say that a person who feels nothing when they see terrible injustice may be emotionally or mentally unhealthy. This is why God gets angry in the Bible. But how does he express himself and express his anger in the Bible? We know already that God describes that his anger is slow. That, that phrase, slow to anger, in the Hebrew literally means it's long in the nose. So let's, let's go back to those Hebrew words. Ereik, Ereik, and af are the two words. Ereik is long and af is nose, or technically dual nostrils. So the literal translation would be, it could be, it takes a long time for God's nose to get hot. I'm not sure that this is going to be a phrase that's going to catch on or not. God is slow to anger. He's patient. He gives people lots of chances to rethink their decisions and change. The, the first time that God is angry, he is, it's after the fifth excuse that Moses has given not to go on the, to rescue the people of Israel. That's when God gets angry. And with Pharaoh, the oppressive king that was responsible for the enslavement of Israel and he had commanded that all the baby boys be drowned, is given 10 chances to change his ways. Paul asks a rhetorical question in, in Romans chapter 2. He says, Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the, God, the kindness of God leads you to repentance? God's patience with humanity is so great that it is probable that we will take advantage of it. God, God is patient, yes. But there is a limit to his patience. And when his patience has been exhausted, what is his response in anger? There's, there's two phrases that the Bible uses over and over when God gets angry. The first one is he hands us over, or hands them over, or he hides his face. What is the Bible trying to communicate with these two phrases? Of course, what do we need if we're going to study the Bible? We need to see it in its context. See, the creation account in the first chapter of Genesis tells us that God speaks order into existence. Prior to God saying, let there be light, the second sentence of the Bible says that the earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. The dark waters represent chaos and disorder. And they're not eliminated. They are put into their productive places by God's power. In Genesis chapter 1, let me show you. He says, God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. So there's the chaotic waters. And let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under, were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. This understanding of creation is found throughout the Bible. 
Proverbs 8.29 says, uh, He assigned to the sea its limit, so that the waters might not transgress His command when He marked out the foundations of the earth. The Psalms, Job, Jeremiah, all use the same image of God's hand holding back the chaos and destructiveness of the dark sea or the dark waters. So if God removes his hand, creation would collapse back into disorder. That imagery is used, in fact, in the story of, in the flood story. It's an illustration of what happens when God removes his hand from holding back the chaos. This is what it says in Genesis in the description of uh, when the floods began. It says, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So both the, uh, the expanse under and the expanse above, God removed his hand, and it poured out, and the rain fell on the earth for 40 days and 40 nights. The chaotic waters that had put, been put in their productive places in chapter 1, up, up, under and above, are, now being, are not being held back any longer. When humans do great evil and stop representing God's kingdom in the world, he hands them over to the death and disorder that they have unleashed on creation. The phrase, he handed them over, is one of the most common ways that God expresses his, his anger in, in the biblical context. They, uh, in um, Judges chapter 2, says, They provoked the Lord because they had forsook him and served Baal and the Asherahs. And the Lord's anger burned hot against Israel. And the Lord gave them into the hands of the raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. There are dozens of examples. Paul uses the same phrase when he discusses the anger of God and in all the history that took place with the Israelites in Romans, Romans chapter 1. He says, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts. Romans 1.26, God gave them over to shameful lust. Romans 1.28, God gave them over to a depraved mind. God handed them over. Another way God expresses his anger is with that metaphor of God hiding his face. Now, this is a direct connection with the withdrawal of God's presence and his power. This is what God says about what he'll do when Israel finally exhausts his patience. In Israel, in Deuteronomy chapter 31, he says, Israel will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. And in that day, my anger will burn hot with them and forsake them. I will hide my face from them and they will be destroyed. Many disasters and calamities will come on them. And in that day, they will ask, have not these disasters come on us because our God is not with us? And I will certainly hide my face in that day because of all their wickedness and turning to other gods. Both of these phrases are used to show God's response and betrayal and to, uh, to betrayal and evil. It's expressed through the handing of handing humans over to the logical consequences. God's anger is expressed by giving people what they want, or at the very least, what they have chosen. If what we have chosen is ruin and death, unfortunately, that is what we will get. 
If they have chosen to worship the gods of the other nations, then God hands them over to those nations. When people refuse to listen to his guidance, he allows them to experience the result of their disregard. Parents can relate to this. When when a child ignores the guidance of their loving parents who only want what's best for them, when God is ignored, when his repeated warnings and purpose are his, everything that he's saying is purposely disregarded, the result is that God hides his face or he hands man or humanity to what they want. The consequences is that we are not able to accomplish the purpose for which we were created, to be his image bearers. This is the beauty of God's characteristic of being slow to anger. Remember, he is not an angry God. That is why he sent a perfect image of himself, Jesus. The glory of God in the face of Jesus. Romans chapter 5, verse 6 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, Most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who is especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we, cert- we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. Yes, God does have the emotion of anger. And when his patience has been exhausted, he will hide his face or he'll hand us over to the logical consequence and all of these things, all sin, all disregard of God, Result and lead us to death. But God's, uh, but greater than God's anger, is God's love. First John four ten. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God's love answers God's anger through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Instead of, God, instead of God hiding his face he ha- and handing, or handing us over, he has reconciled us to himself. A message on, on, on God's anger that I f- was intimidated to give turns out to be a message on God's love. Today, we can experience that love by accepting the gift he gave to us when he answered God's anger. I would like to invite you to pray this prayer with me now. Jesus, today I repent. I confess that I have too often ignored your warnings and that I have taken you for granted. I've taken your patience for granted. Right now I turn to you. You are my Lord. I respond to to your love that you showed to us when you died for us. I receive your spirit that is available because of your resurrection. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Those of you that are joining us online, I want to encourage you to 
uh, take a few moments to respond to the Holy Spirit. And then Pastor Corey is going to come in, give you a few now announcements, and then pray a prayer blessing over you.